Hello and welcome to Monkey Business, a podcast about the mind. I'm Rosalind Palmer, your host, and I'm a rapid transformational hypnotherapist, clinical hypnotherapist and coach. For 30 years, I've been steeped in the world of NLP and learning about what makes people tick. My background is a business background. I ran, I created, I sold an award-winning PR company in the 90s. I learned a lot about business. I also learned a lot about mindset and I learned the hard way about burnout. Having the right mindset in business is arguably the number one predictor of whether your business will succeed or fail. What's more, your business can succeed, mine did, but you might fail as a human being. So quieting your mind is a key to enjoying the business journey, coming back from setbacks, enjoying the successes without letting them completely change you, and also creating a balanced life for yourself outside of the business. This is a podcast for you to learn from the successes and failures of others who have tamed their monkey mind or sometimes allowed their chimp to take over. It will give you insights into how they've used their mindset for success and help you navigate your life and achieve better business outcomes. So without further ado, welcome to Monkey Business. I'm Rosalind Palmer and you are most welcome. Hello, I'm Rosalind Palmer and welcome to another episode of Monkey Business, the podcast for business people and people everywhere that really delves into your monkey mind, that monkey chatter, that uh, chatter on your shoulder, which is really all about your mindset. And the aim of the podcast is to really understand the mindsets of the kings and queens of their own particular jungles who've maybe tamed those monkey minds for success or come back from adversity and failure and really come through. So very much like Stephen Covey has the seven habits of highly successful people, we're delving behind the habits into the mindset. And what better guest today? I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Chris Cook. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much. I'm excited about this one. I am too. And um, I'm just going to introduce you very briefly. Chris is a speaker, a business coach, and a mentor, but specifically a mentor for young athletes because he has a 10-year fantastic career and highly successful career as a GB swimmer um, athlete behind him. I'm just reading here so I get it right, Chris. Former double Olympian and former Commonwealth champion. Is that correct? That's correct. It sounds quite good, that, doesn't it? <laughs> It sounds, I'm very impressed. I'm, I'm also, what I'm really aiming to get in our conversation today, and, and I feel we, we've, we've had a quick chat before we, we, we press the live button, and I always feel I already know you, is I'm very interested in that 10 years, that 10 years in a very, very high pressurized performance sport and how you got to the top, stayed at the top, what really that meant to you. And then that changed because you've had just over 10 years as a mentor, a speaker, a coach. So how you were able to take 
probably the best of your learning and the best of what you were doing into this new world. So let's back up maybe to the Olympic career. How did you really get into that? How did you manage to be a boy who was really good at swimming, no doubt, at school and move from that into being a, a double Olympian? Well, it's really interesting you say that. Like People assume that I was a kind of child prodigy, that I was fantastic at swimming, and actually it was the exact opposite. Um, you know, I always joke with people that I was the fifth fastest swimmer in my club of my age group in South Shields, but there was only five kids in my age group <laughs> in the club. But there's a, there's a little bit of truth in that, in the sense that whilst it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, there was no God-given talent there. There wasn't somebody came along and went, wow, he's phenomenal. Let's draft him in. Let's get him signed up. And there was certainly no beam of light came down from the voice of, with the voice of God and delivered a tracksuit at the door. There was just some real pivotal turning points. And um, one was making a start. I say that to all my clients. I'd stop bumping our gums and talking about it. <laughs> just make a start. And when we make a start, we start getting evidence. When we get evidence, we build confidence, we get information. And yeah, that's what started. Started watching Adrian Morehouse, who won won a gold medal at the Seoul Olympic Games. Watched him do it on TV and thought, I could have a go at that. And then joined a swimming club. And before I knew it, I found a passion. But I think more to the point was I found something that really fit with me. You know, I'm an introvert. I like to be on my own a lot. <laughs> so lockdown's played into my hands, if I'm honest with you. Um, but I, I also enjoy the extroverted side and I enjoy being around a crowd, but I, I have to be careful how much I have of that. So swimming for me was great. Head down, just go, you know, and and, and yeah, to, to make that transition to an Olympian was a long, a long time, from the age of nine till I was 25, and- long time. Did something, again, you talk about pivotal moments and sometimes it's luck. I don't know if you had a fantastic coach or mentor you who, who took you on that path. Did something happen, you know, an ha-ha moment maybe in your mind that made you realise I could do this, I could really go for the top during those years? Yeah, there was, there was some key pivotal people in my life. Ken Nesworthy was my first coach. He was a parent sat on poolside at one time with a newspaper and got dragged into coaching it, but he absolutely loved it. And he came with a very different outlook. He wasn't from a swimming background. And I think there's so much benefit to those cross-industry mindsets and bringing something new and fresh in. And he really challenged things from a young age and he would never let me off the hook. If you said you were going to do something, you did it. Mm. And then we'd talk about it afterwards. If you didn't do it, then there was a conversation we had around, well, what's what's in the way? And you have that from the age of 12 upwards. It's such an impressionable age of your life. And this is where I believe, as corny as it sounds, sport can change people's lives, change mine. And I see it change the lives of young people all around the country on a regular basis. But yeah, there was a, there was a few key pivotal points. The, one, the main one was when I returned from the Olympics. I returned from the 2004 Olympics. I'd made the Olympics and I was doing really well in the world rankings. I was in the top 10 in the world. And I really was at a stage where it was unusual to be asking these questions, but I was asking, what more can we do? I was constantly asking, what more, what more, what more? And the the problem, problem with that question is, you get the answer and you end up adding more to your job list. Yeah. And actually what I needed to do, I needed to really look at the stop doing list and I wasn't. 
Yeah, it, I'm a big fan of the oh, stop doing lifts. Me too. And it was a comment from a sports psychologist one day when I was really stressed. He's called Simon Hartley and we speak on a circuit together sometimes. And he said, you know, you look really stressed. And I said, I am. I've got all these things going on. I've got, now I'm at the, in the top 10 in the world. I've got to report different people. I've got different stakeholders to keep happy and all of this. And he said, wow, that's a lot for somebody who just has to swim two lengths of the pool as fast as they can. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me or what? And and actually what he triggered me like crazy then, I was really upset. And my ego was on full overdrive. <laughs> and to cut a long story short, we started to explore the two lengths, the power of keeping it simple. And that was a real key pivotal point. And the questions we asked off the back of that was, is what I'm doing right here, right now, helping me swim two lengths, yes or no? No grey fluffiness, yes or no? If the answer was no, it got the boot. If it was yes, it got it got the stay in. Mm. But it really challenged normal beliefs, what we've always done. Things came up like, well, we've always done it this way. Well, I'm in the top ten in the world, so why should I question it now? And other things came up like, well, everybody else does it this way. <laughs> <laughs> But that wasn't answering the question. The question was, is it helping you swim two lengths? No, then don't do it. Mm, I love that. I mean, already I've heard so many, I can see why you're a great mentor and coach um, and speaker as well, because I'm, I'm hearing, I'm, I'm literally going, tick. <laughs> <laughs> the, la the last words of my book are JFDI, which is just bleep, do it. Um, <laughs> and... And, and I agree with you about when I ran my PR business back in the 90s, um, it was the time when people were madly diversifying. You know, diversification in the 90s was, was the flavor of the week. Um, mm. And I just kept being really good at PR, really good. And I used to call it sticking to the knitting. <laughs> I think, I think that's probably a Yorkshire phrase. I must have got it from my grandma. Really? But, you know, it's about I'm going to stick with what, what what I'm good at and that wasn't because I lacked ambition or or imagination but I suppose that was my equivalent of the two lengths really let's stick with the two lengths so what during that time was your your biggest challenge really the, 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 there was a few big challenges the main one was ensuring that I, I identified my own personal blind spots you know we, we tend to go about things using the best tools we've got we tend not to delve into the toolkit to use the ones that we're not good at and and if you want to be world class at something you know and i say to people all the time in order to find your your two lengths and i challenge businesses all the time on stage in small groups in coaching sessions you need to know your stuff better than anyone else you need to really in order to simplify you need to really really know it in order to know it you have to almost put the, the 10,000 hour theory of becoming an expert in something. All right, you can challenge some of that stuff, but there's a real, there's something you can really hang your hat on there. And that is about practice, 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 and polishing it up and understanding where it fits in life. So for me, that the big challenge was understanding what parts of my personality need to be challenged here. And a huge part of it was emotional resilience. Mm. I realized that my first reaction to most things was quite explosive. It was quite cutting. I would carry things around a lot. So comments or bad performances, I would carry them around, really carry them. And they were the things that were starting to get in the way. So the two lengths helped me start to focus on 
hang on a second, if that's not helping me, and I hold that up against the two lengths, does this emotional resilience help me? No, it's not. Then we need something to change. And being brave enough to face it. Yeah, well, A, identify it. Um, you know, I'm wearing my therapist hat now. Yeah. A, you know, own it, identify yeah. it, uh, work out what it's not doing for you and the damage it's probably doing for you, and then B, deal with it. So yeah. how how did you deal with that, you know, emotional resilience, but also those maybe kickbacks, those blocks? Well, I, I follow a very simple three-step rule with my coach, and the first one is ask it, ask the question. Good quality questions derive good quality answers. Then you've got to answer it. So it's the power of the three A's, this is. Ask, answer, and then the last one's action. Keep it really simple. And the, the gap between answering and action is often where people get a little bit wobbly, a bit like, oh, I've said it, I'm going to have to do it now. Yeah. That's the bit that actually, in getting out there, it's about identifying those those opportunities to stress test it. So, for example, we went on this, this crazy hunt of places where I could race that weren't as glitzy and glamorous as the Olympics. Mm. So we actively went in search of them. We looked at, at pools around the world and competitions that were around the world that were hard to get to. So I'd have to travel days and you know get there quite remote. But when I got there, I had to perform like it was the Olympics. And that two years beforehand, I would never ever have taken on that challenge. I've never gone it alone and traveled out there by myself. I would never have identified those opportunities. I'd have gone, that's not good for me. I'll never perform that, that level. And, and yeah, we started then to look to stress test resilience because I'm a big believer that resilience is an experience we have to move through yeah. in order to, we almost have to experience being broken before we fix it again in that respect. Well, you, you, you're talking to the poster girl for resilience here, so... <laughs> Um, we were talking about Clubhouse earlier and we won't, we won't digress now, but I've regularly been um, a guest speaker within the resilience room because very early, I think people picked up on Clubhouse that A, I have a story to tell yeah. and B, it, it's really coming through all of that adversity that has given me resilience. And, and I, I studied it last year, actually. Um, I do a lot of talks on it myself. So some people have a higher set point, yeah. not very many, not very many. Uh, some people are naturally born with a slightly higher resilience set point. Most people learn through experience and adversity and come through but obviously your mindset in getting you through in keeping you going in sticking to the knitting um that's all key where do you think your let's call it your focused resilient mindset came from is that part of your childhood your upbringing what do you attribute it to yeah that's a that's a really interesting one there's no straight answer on that i definitely think the people i met the journeys I went on and the risks I took were key pivotal things in the whole process because, you know, the, the people that you meet, you can learn so much from. The journeys that you go on are almost like chapters in your book if you were writing a book. And, you know, the couple of the fact that you get to take you everywhere. And I truly believe that we've, whenever we go through an experience, we're almost creating a, a new blueprint a new opportunity to go, hang on a second, I can more than adapt my skills to this. But often, 
I find as though there's a little bit of resistance to change. There's a resistance within each of us to change. But then when you consider that life is about change, I mean, the cells in our body have changed since we've been on this call. <laughs> you know, the very essence of life is about change, but we, we resist it because we want to, we want certainty. We like to know that we've got a future and something if we go into it and all these things going on. But if we just accept that, actually we're just here to be a little bit better than we were yesterday in all different areas of our life there's some opportunities can open up there definitely the, the trouble is there's a lot of dichotomy within us as human beings as you know um the need for certainty yeah. uh, is absolutely one of our primeval instincts you know our limbic amygdala our caveman part of our brain is certainty equals safety yeah. but then we also seek variety i i remember tony robbins in the 90s talking about he, he used the example of somebody who joined a gang. And in, in the 90s, New York was not what it is today. You know, it was not a safe place to be. And I think Nancy Reagan at the time was doing this, just say no, you know, to drugs. And Tony Robbins, I remember hearing him saying, what absolute, you know, bunkum. You, why, why would they say no? Because here's what they're saying yes to. Um, and then he went through kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But so many of them are contradictory. So he was saying, you know, I've joined a gang. I get certainty because... I'm part of the gang and I know, you know, what the rules are and the rituals. I get uncertainty. Today, a mugging, you know, tomorrow. And <laughs> we went through the whole, effectively, the dilemma of, of yeah. those, those two sides that we all have. So wanting to know about you taming your monkey mind or that mm. chimp mind, how did you get through those 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 dilemmas that turned up in you? Because you took you everywhere you went, regardless yeah. of where it was. How did you get there to, to that Olympic pool? Um, I, I realised that if I really wanted something, then in order to get it, I would have to adapt and change. That was the first realisation that the person I was when I wanted it at the start, wasn't the person who was going to get it. Yeah. So almost looking at, here's the challenge, but here's the character. You know, the challenge is higher than the character because by definition, it's a challenge. If it wasn't, then it would be a walk in the park. It would be the way around. So the challenge is up here and the character's down here. So there's two things going on there. What, what, what am I working on to meet the demands of the challenge, but also what characteristics meet the demands of the challenge? And when I looked at other Olympians and I looked how they operated and I, I observed them, I wasn't that. Mm. And that didn't put me off. That excited me that actually in the next four years, I've now got a role model to work towards or even just a, a loose outline of the person I need to be. And I think that's key, you know, and I think a lot of people don't do that in business. They see that promotion, but they don't see the character that needs to... I, I think that's really true and having this podcast is a joy as well because I get to talk exactly about this topic with people but quite a few of the people are people I've actually met and worked with in re real life shall we say yeah. you know it, it also my former PR and marketing career and you're right because when I was stuck or having a bad day or that monkey chatter was there I'd think to myself what would so-and-so do exactly how would they turn up today what would yeah. they do first what would their outcome of the day be yeah. and I I realized that's got me through so many difficult situations yeah. 
It's so true. And I think what a lot of people tend to do is, and I'm going to contradict myself in many respects, but I'll come back on it, is there is that element of being a little bit better than was yesterday, but there's also ditching the stuff that's not serving you. So when we identify the person we need to be, we need to step into that person and be that. You know, I heard a phrase the other day, dress for the job you want, not the one you've got. And that fits perfectly with that for me because that is about identifying who you need to be. And we need to practice that now. We need to practice that now, not when we get there. Oh, when I get there, I'll start doing that. No, do it now. Live, breathe, act, talk, think like it. And we, we tend to bring it into our experience in an easier flow People talk about the law of attraction, all of that, and I get all of that. And, you know, there may be that non-physical thing going on. I don't profess to know what it is, but I definitely feel like I can tap into it. But I tap into it by working on the inner stuff. It's the inward reflection, not outward. Yeah. I don't sit there going, where is it? Where is it? Looking around for it. Yeah. I look for the space inside and go, there's a space here I can really work on. Is it emotional resilience? Oh, that's going to be tough. But what I think often people do is they open that box to shine a torch in the dark space and go, no chance, shut the box, switch the light off. Well, it feels like a very uncomfortable journey, doesn't it? Yeah. And you're right, you know, it, it's one thing at a time. But I, I think you're right. I, I came through agency life in the 80s and the 90s with that mantra, you know, <laughs> to the level you want to be promoted to, you know, behave yeah. in the way that you, you, you know, the next level up. Uh, and for me, probably the biggest learning of that 20 years of my life was that, because also as well, you know, here's a girl who went to a comprehensive school and, you know, my parents were great, but, you know, grocers at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and I'm suddenly in this London world and it was like, what's their mindset? How would they yeah. turn up for this? Um, and a lot of it was self-learned because people weren't necessarily teaching this stuff. <laughs> Um, in the Olympics, before I move on to your sort of second iteration and taking all these fantastic transferable skills into what you do today, and I'm not asking you to name names, but who or how did you see people getting it wrong? Um, I saw people walking out to the blocks and coming back home with a medal that didn't reflect their talent and their work ethic. And I would often watch races and it wasn't what happened in the race. It's what happened before and after the kind of mm. the behavior, the traits, you know, I, I was very lucky. I got to share the call room with people like Michael Phelps for 10 years and watching how he operated. I mean, he's the greatest Olympian in my eyes, you know, the arguments out there, but he, he's obviously up there with one of the greatest of all time ever. I mean, that is, that is phenomenal. I got the chance to, see him operate I've raced my last race was the Olympic final with him two lanes away we wanted the gold medal obviously they got it the Americans and we finished sixth but I watched people like that and realized that what they were working on were very human things not kind of superhuman and whilst we can celebrate and talk about the talent of these athletes and they do have talent it, it, it's not that that gets them there it's one of the 5, 10, 15, 20 factors which gets in there but it's not sitting at the top talent No, hard work's there work ethic, being willing to look in the dark spaces and work on all the stuff that's going to get you there and that's the key is, is when I was picking people out, I was picking a comparison of me to them with what was missing, I was admiring what they were doing 
Mm. But then I wasn't going on this Facebook, Twitter campaign of comparison. That's the wrong comparison. This was a. I think you're talking about character, aren't you? Yeah, that's it. You're talking about values and character. So somebody like him, what what stood out for you? Just his, he he never let anybody take his power. Mm. You know, he kept his power and he didn't do it in a way that he bullied the room, which really turned my head. Because that, that for me, I, you know, I'm, I'm a very out of harmony person. Um, I think about the room before I think about myself. That's kind of one of the, sometimes one of the things I've had to challenge and tackle over the last 10 years. Um, because that's got its downsides too. Whilst people warm to that kind of character because I'm very empathetic. Also, I have to dial up the inner harmony and ask, hang on a second, I need to top my own cup up here at some stage. Yeah. So I've worked really hard on that. But it's not my default. My default is how's the room doing? So with with people like Michael Phelps and there's another Japanese swimmer called Kasuke Kitajima who dominated my field, breaststroke, for four Olympics or three Olympics, sorry. And he was phenomenal, but he had the same character trait. He, he never let anybody steal his power. He had this kind of presence about him, very present here now. And I'll never forget, um, after watching him break a world record and he won gold at the World Champs, I mean, there's, there's no better meet than that you get the gold record a world record and the gold medal and he was the last one out of the pool after the meet had finished when the lights were turning off and the caretaker was sweeping the poolside and we asked his coach we said what are you doing he said oh he felt like he messed up one of his turns <laughs> and it's just like that 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 alone that one answer back is i'm at the top of my game just gonna push it a little bit further I mean, he could have been going out on a night out and having a good, let his hair down and things. He's, he's well entitled to it. But actually, it wasn't about that. And when I really reflect on the why, what was his journey, what was my journey, was being able to look back and say, I did everything I could and I'm satisfied. That was what it came down to. And I feel really lucky that I get the chance to do that. When did you, or what happens with, somebody at the top of their game like you and like them when you decide that's it mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, that's it how does that happen Oof, that's it I mean I can only talk from personal experience and um, my experience was I didn't feel the same way about Olympic gold and needed to move on mm-hmm. um, I sat with it for a bit I kind of knew I was I knew I'd reached my peak and that's what I felt. I felt physically, mentally, and emotionally like I'd reached my peak. I couldn't envisage going on for another four years of what I'd just gone through and more. So, and I never felt like that before. So I started answering and asking some really tough quest questions. And when I decided to move on, I was probably better positioned than I'd ever been to go on to do something else. But I went through a really, really, like, I would say three years of the most traumatic experience yet nothing happened <laughs> it must be a bit like a bereavement really yeah it was it was exactly that you're cutting off aren't you you're cutting off from one iteration it was exactly um, and you are you know moving on to something else and and like a divorce or a bereavement you know that takes some mourning sometimes it was it was a loss and i think coupled with the fact that uh, my ego was on full tilt at the time you know i was a double Olympian finished in a, an Olympic final my last ever race I had all these kind of one-liners that made people go wow <laughs> and 
And yet I was lost, lonely, didn't know where to go. But the thing that was really, really holding me back was I wasn't willing to start again. Mm. I wasn't willing Because you felt give myself. going at something because I put all this work in already. Yeah, yeah. Could I bypass the first 10 stages and get to stage yeah. 10? Yes. And, and actually now I get excited when I have to start again. So when we came back from COVID as a business, I've got two businesses. I've got a speaking business and a coaching business. But I've also got a learn to swim business that I figure I head up. My wife runs it. She's a managing director. And we lost both businesses or we lost all of our income from both businesses in the space of two days. Yeah. Coming back from that, ordinarily, I would have been petrified, worried, I'd have attached to the fact that I'm going to lose my house and my kids are not going to get fed and all these crazy things to the story. But actually having gone through what I went through in that transition between sport and business, I feel as though I went through my rock bottom and I'm really grateful. Yeah. And people talk about their rock bottom like it was a really traumatic thing. I talk about it and celebrate it because I go, look who I am now. Like, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm the same. You know, my book's called Reset because, you know, I think there's that desire, please, could I just press the reset button? <laughs> I think we've been feeling that about the world. Yeah. Um, and certainly I felt like it and had to do it many times in my life. And I did, I was talking recently and I thought maybe it was my own fault because when I was in PR and things were going quite well, I used to have a a sign at the side of my desk saying, I've learned so much from my mistakes, I think I'll make enough. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. And then also I I asked for grace. I thought, what do I need as a character? I need Mm. more grace. And I didn't realise that to get grace, it meant I was going to be broken into pieces (laughs) myself back together again. But there's a lovely poem, strong trees do not grow with ease, the stronger the wind the stronger the trees. Oh, um, I love that. And I, I, I love say that. it to nearly all of my clients. And of course, it's not fun while you're going through it, though, is it? Yeah. yeah, it's not. But then there's a, there's a phrase that I use or a question that I use, and it's a very, it comes back to something simple. Do I want this experience to help me get bitter or better? Oh, I like that. Bitter. Am I, yeah. Yeah. Am I, am I, am I going to allow myself to get bitter? Because that's easy, that. That is easy. That is just keep running the story as hard as you can, get really angry and add a bit more fury in. <laughs> and, yeah. and your brain goes in search of that evidence. You know, it's, it, it goes in search of it and it creates the victim and backs up the victim. And I'm, 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 I am victim to my victim of quite a bit. So <laughs> I get it. But that's the one question I come back to is do I have to swallow something here to get better? I don't want to stay here and be better because I don't like this feeling, actually, if I'm honest with you. I love that. I'm, I might have to steal it. <laughs> <laughs> permanently borrow. Permanently borrow it. Go for it. <laughs> and here's one you can permanently borrow back. So we are going to have a separate conversation about Clubhouse. But very early, I went into a room where we were sharing, you know, some of our truths and some of our stories. And this American woman said, I love it. She said, you've turned your mess into a message. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I think that will be the title of my next book. Turning Love my, it. turning my mess into a message. So, yeah. <laughs> so I like that. When you went through this three years, this mourning, this change, this transition, what was your aha moment about turning all of those transferable skills into the coaching, into the mentoring, into the speaking? How did that come about? 
Um, well, there was, a, there was a couple of key pivotal moments. One was when I got up on stage and spoke at a conference and I got approached by somebody who almost opened a door. You know those moments when you have that conversation with that one person who just says, I get you, I get where you want to go, and I think I've got a roadmap for you. And it was just one of those sliding doors opportunities. Um, I took it, I was in the right place at the right time, delivering the right message. And that opened the door to for me to really put my stamp on my own mentoring program. It was only supposed to be three weeks at best, turned out to be six and a half years of work. It was just one of those that just kept, we kept pulling the thread and it kept going. And I got the chance to really influence and reach out with tens of thousands of young people on various different platforms, mostly in front of them. Um, it was hard work. I probably haven't got the energy now to do it again, but I am so grateful for the chance. So I think what I'm really saying there is I kept banging the drum mm. and eventually other people joined the orchestra. <laughs> and But, you know, we, we have to provide the world with evidence first. We... You know, there's plenty of people you meet on your journey who go, mm, not for me, thanks, or no thanks. But if you're not frightened of the word no, you'll ask for anything, you'll keep going. And and that was the pivotal moment was when somebody just went, I get what you're doing, I get your message, and I feel it fits here, and I started to see where my impact could be. For those three years in between, I was just, I was experimenting, I was going with a mantra of experiments can't fail, they can't fail, they can't fail, and I kept playing that mantra that experiments just give you information back. That's all you, they do. They give you results. What you do with those results is what determines what happens off the back of the experiment. And that was those three years, but they were quite quite turbulent, if I'm honest. And what was your biggest learning? Because obviously all those young people in the audience would have been your greatest teachers, I'm sure. Mm. What was your biggest learning about how you were able to maybe communicate help or influence the very ones who didn't want to let that message in? Storytelling. Mm. We are pre-programmed for sitting around a campfire, <laughs> listening to stories. Something I also say a lot. <laughs> yeah, really, that's amazing. Yes, that's amazing. Yeah. We are, and we, we like stories. You know, if I tell my story about winning two gold medals at the Commonwealth Games, and you hear somebody else tell my story to someone else and go, oh, I heard this guy bumping his gums about his his gold medals and he won two gold medals at the Olympics. Now I'm sitting there thinking, I didn't win them at the Olympics, it was the Commonwealth Games. They, they, they don't remember the detail, they, they skew with the detail. But the one thing they will remember is what my granddad said when I was nine, they'll remember that bit. Because emotionally, I guess, for them, they've gone, well, I've got a grandparent, I know how that feels. And they've attached to the emotion of the story. and. I noticed that, I watched, and I watched crowds year on year, big crowds from children right up to adults, and just watched how they behaved after I'd said a word or a phrase or told a story. Mm. And it was very, very similar. It, and it wasn't area dependent. Response, yeah, it was. And, and, and I also learned that when you're delivering a message, try and hit them when that, 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 at their most emotive, whether they're laughing, whether they're kind of bought into the lump in the throat story, hit them when they're, they're at their least expecting, like a comedian would with a serious message and an undertone. And mm. yeah, that's what I learned. And it, it, very unlike me as an introvert. What did, your, what did your grandfather say to you when you were nine? 
dream big, start small, anything's possible. Mm. And then start my journey. And that became my mantra. And I think he said it as a throwaway comment to get us off talking about the subject. <laughs> but it, it was, it, it stuck with us. It was one of those moments that I was just like, yeah, let's make a start and join a swimming club and everything opened out. Um, yeah. Apart from having to, like so many people having to pivot last year hmm. um, because maybe the world you'd set up for success was suddenly not there anymore. What have been the biggest challenges in the last 10 years in this career you're in now? My emotional response to things, um, or my, should I say reaction? I, I split it up into two things, reaction versus response. So... <laughs> I'm a very emotive person, so if I get some bad news, boom, I go off on one, you know. And my wife knows me so well enough now that she knows it's just either my chimp going crazy or I'm just experiencing that anxiety gap between where I want to get to and where I am now. And we both know, I instinctively know now, that that will settle and then my logic brain kicks in. So I kind of, weirdly, I don't know if this is good or bad, but I do it and it works. I let my chimp go and I just let it go for it. Um, that's been my biggest challenge. Before then, I used to suppress it. I used to feel guilty about it. So if he did have an outburst, I'd be like, oh my God, I best go around and tell everyone I'm really remorseful and patch it up. And now I don't do that as such. I go for it and I let that happen. And if I do have some explaining to do afterwards, I'll, I'll do that. I'll kind of... Kind of let it, let it. Yeah. It's interesting. I... Years ago, I, I did some work with John Gray, you know, the guy who wrote Men of Mars and Women from Venus. And he said the difference between men and women, but I think what you're saying relates to both, is that women have to bottom out. So it's like when they're going, it's like they've got to go down the bottom of the well, down the bottom of the well. We're not quite there yet. Oh, <laughs> oh, I've, I've got, oh, I've hit the bottom of the well. I'm coming back up again. And he said, and men are like on a bit of elastic, that it's like, I'm off to the cave. I'm off to the cave. I'm going deeper in the cave. I'm down the end of the cave. Boing, I'm coming back again. Yeah. <laughs> either way, it really is about letting that out and seeing it through, which is what you're saying you found as a coping mechanism. It is. I allow that reaction to happen. It's important for me to lift the lid on it and almost take the take the cooker pressure, pressure cooker off, you know, the, the pressure of that, and then allow the response to come through. And that, for me, COVID did that. I spent three weeks with my chimp going crazy, worrying. I remember picking my kids up when both businesses had kind of folded and collapsed. And I picked my kids up and it was this real parallel life thing going on you know they were celebrating the fact that school was out forever and I was walking behind them going oh my god what's going to happen next you know and a lot of parents actually <laughs> yeah but what, that's what I rested on in the next few weeks got that followed I allowed my response to be you know I asked questions of how do I want to behave how do I and the one line that I've got and I've got it written on my wall in, in the office is emerge stronger that's my mantra is Everything I do on a daily basis is about emerging stronger. And we've, I've just hit my best sales month last month for speaking online. And I'll be honest, it's not a preferred choice, but I'm really enjoying it now. You Well, you mentioned that actually in, in many ways, lockdowns played to some of your 
Yeah. Me too, funnily enough. I mean, I'm I'm a classic extroverted introvert. Um, <laughs> it took me a long time to work that out, uh, you know, career in PR and all the rest of it. But, you know, a degree in English literature, sitting in very dark, horrible rooms, reading books for three years. You know, this is not the, this is not the degree of an extrovert. Um, yeah. And I, I used to go away to a juice retreat and on their wall, they used to have in big letters, sometimes the best way to go forward is to retreat. Mm. Um, and I think that is about that, you know, just allowing it to happen. Um, I literally could talk to you all day. Oh, me too, me too, thank <laughs> um, you. I, I'm sure most people could listen to this all day. And I really want to ask you, what's the question I haven't asked you that you'd like to ask of yourself? Oh, what, what's my current challenge? Yeah, and what is that? That is to be patient. I'm in a rush, like everybody else. I've bought into society's mm. norm, shall we say, because the pace of change is not going to let up. It's not going to get slower. But that doesn't mean to say we need to be in a rush internally. And I know that's my challenge. I'm in a new, newer field, not a new field. I'm in a newer field. I've got evidence that it's growing, and I just need to be patient and, and enjoy that. And there's moments when I enjoy it. And then there's moments where I find myself in the thick of trying to force it and push it. And that's my challenge is to be patient. Maybe you need the, sometimes the best way forward is to retreat on your walk. <laughs> I, I interviewed um, a very experienced broadcaster, Janie Lee Grace. And she said to me, a very good question is, what's the one question you wouldn't want me to ask? So what's the one question you wouldn't want me to ask, Chris? Oh, I've no idea on that. I'd have to have a think about that one. That's a good one. Um, maybe follow up. <laughs> yeah, maybe where are you going to be in ten years' time? And the answer to that would be, I have no idea, and that scares me. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's probably also true for most of us, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We don't quite know where the world is going, so we're going to all have to strap in and enjoy the ride. So. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you. I've enjoyed this two lengths, many lengths here with you. Uh, It's been fantastic. I really appreciate your time and input. Uh, I've got a feeling our paths are going to cross. Me too. Thank you. I think we've got a lot of things in common and and you've really shared. And and congratulations for for the way you're mentoring young people and, and, you know, you're making such a difference in the world. Oh, thank you very much. I've loved this. Genuinely loved it. I've loved it too. So I've been in conversation today with Chris Cook and I'm Rosalind Palmer and this is Monkey Business. You've been listening to Monkey Business Podcast, a podcast that looks into the business of mindset and to the mindsets that makes particular individuals the kings or queens of their own jungles. And you've been listening today to Chris Cook, my guest, Team GB Olympian, motivational speaker, workshop deliverer, business coach and mentor, who from his experience in the Olympics and Commonwealth Games is inspiring others to keep things simple and focus on those two lengths, what really matters in your life. It's been a pleasure to interview Chris Cook today. Look forward to being with you again with Monkey Business next week.